Welcome back, everyone. We have so much to get into in this episode of The Joseph Carlson Show. As you know, I made some changes to the portfolio at the beginning of this year. I'm basically trying to up the quality of my companies. I'm trying to trim down on some of the fat and make it so that every company in my portfolio are really top performers. Now, what I want to do is actually just do an update, see what's going on year to date. We're up 5.96% so far year to date. That's 22,000. And we're going to go by sector by sector and category by category and just see how these companies are doing and why they're performing the way they are this year. Then, of course, we have some economic news. U.S. GDP came out at 2.9%. Growth is moderating in the U.S. Corporate layoffs are spreading beyond just big tech into the entire corporate world. And we have some earnings reports. Union Pacific released their earnings. Microsoft released their earnings. MasterCard released their earnings. These are all large holdings in my portfolio. And we're gonna be going through all of these earnings reports and see how these companies are doing. And then finally, we have an update on all of those TikToks of a day in the life of a LinkedIn employee or a Google employee. Now employees, or rather ex-employees, are making videos of a day in the life of being laid off from Google. I kid you not, this is the new trend. They're making videos about their story of being laid off. So as always, we have a lot to get to in this episode. Let's go ahead and start off with a portfolio update. We gain thousands of new subscribers in the Joseph Carlson Show every single month. So if you're one of the new ones here, welcome. We do something a little bit different here than most channels. We show our actual money, we show it invested, we show it transparently with every single thing that we're buying, every single thing that we're selling. I not only show what I'm buying and selling, but I also show when I make mistakes, when I have investments that don't turn out well. One of my worst investments right now is Disney. I'm losing money on this company. So there's a level of transparency here that you don't get in many other places. But what I wanna do in this video is give an update on the performance of my portfolio year to date. We're looking at the passive income account. And what I'll say is this $393,000, that is real money, and that makes up my largest investment vehicle by far. I have another smaller tech portfolio, but that one is much smaller than this portfolio. $400,000 is a ton of money to me. The only thing that even comes close is my equity in my house where I live, and I don't really consider that an investment in the same way I do the passive income portfolio. So this is a meaningful amount of money, and the goal here is to compound my portfolio as much as possible. Frankly, I want to beat the S&P 500, and I want to beat it by a large degree over the next 10 years. In terms of keeping track of progress, I really started paying attention to it in 2022. In 2022, the passive income account was down 16.22%, and that's with dividends being included. So with dividends reinvested, we were down 16.22% time-weighted returns. The S&P 500 went down 18.14% the same year with dividends reinvested. So we barely outperformed it in 2022, and that's partially because of how well Texas Roadhouse and Vici did. So a couple holdings held it up last year. But this isn't the type of outperformance that I'm wanting. I don't want to beat the S&P 500 by just a couple percentage. I'd like to make the gap much wider over the coming years. And so what I want to do is go over my plan for doing that. If I flip over to year to date, so far we're up 6.21%. The S&P 500 is up 5.77%, so we're basically matching it right now. And some of my companies are performing a little bit better than others. If we stay on the year-to-date metric here, we can go sector by sector. If we go into the tech category, I have two companies in this category, Apple and Microsoft. Apple's up 14% 
Microsoft is lagging the market up only two and a half percent. I think that Microsoft right now is heavily undervalued based off the quality of the company and its future growth prospects. And I say that after seeing their last earnings that were a bit disappointing to investors. If we look at Microsoft's latest numbers, they were a little bit lower than last year. The earnings were down 11% year over year. The EBITDA was a little bit lower. That's a little bit concerning. Even the top line revenue had an incredible deceleration. It only grew at 2%, 2% year over year. But most of all, I think the most concerning thing is in the cash flow of the company. The cash flows plummeted. Look at this last quarter. Doesn't that put it in perspective there? The cash flow is like a third of what it was the prior quarters. Now, over the full year, it was a pretty good year for Microsoft in 2022, but the fourth quarter shows a strong deceleration. Then, in addition to all these slowing trends with this quarter, we have the CEO of the company, Satya Nadella. He goes on the earnings call, and he basically does everything in his power to torpedo the company's stock price. He talks about how everything's slowing down and the company's going to basically take a break for the next two years. The tech spending's slowing down, the economy's slowing down. Every time someone talks to him about something exciting, he basically pours cold water on it. So he was not enthusiastic in this earnings report. Now, there's something that I want to mention that I think is an often missed point, but I think it's very important in regards to CEOs like Sachin Adela talking negatively about his own company saying that that growth is slowing, that competition is coming, that they're struggling through the times. Let me put it this way. Once you're the CEO of a company that is monopolistic and incredibly powerful, it's as if you get invited to a secret club, a secret club of CEOs of monopolistic companies. And they highlight the rules right when you enter in the club. They say rule one of being part of a monopolistic company is you do not talk about the monopolistic nature of your company. Rule two is to not break rule one. Do not talk about the monopolistic nature of your company. You have to tell the public that you're a company that faces lots of competition. You don't have a stranglehold on the market. You are struggling. You're just hanging in there. That's what you do as the CEO of a monopolistic company. So with that in mind, you're never going to hear a CEO like Satya Nadella come out and say, Microsoft uh, basically controls everything in the corporate world. We have all of the most important applications. We face minimal competition that we can frankly just buy if they ever actually threaten us. And Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And all things are running as normal. We basically don't have to do much to maintain our monopoly. He's never going to come out and say that. You have to read that between the lines. Tim Cook will never come out and say that iOS is a monopoly. He'll never come out and say that even though it kind of is. You're never going to have the CEO of MasterCard, which is clearly monopolistic, and they own a duopoly with Visa. The CEO of MasterCard's never going to come out and say, look, we control the payment rails. Everything flows through us. We have a natural monopoly. People use our products. We have incredibly little competition. And anyone that tries to go around us instead of through us does to their own detriment. 
He will never say that. The CEOs of monopolistic companies are often the ones that talk mostly about all the challenges they face. They talk about all the problems a company has, all the competition they face, and they do so because they know publicly that's what's best to highlight. Because in many cases, the main challenge these companies face is legislation the government coming in and breaking up their natural monopolies. Now, on the contrary, in many cases, the CEOs that talk about their company being a monopoly and facing no competition, and they can't even see competition with a telescope, are in many cases the companies that face the most intense competition. So a lot of this is completely inverse to what you would suspect. As an investor, when you're listening to earnings calls and you're listening to companies talk about their own company, the ones that are the most confident in their market position are the ones that need to speak the least amount about how powerful their business model is. The companies that have the least powerful market positions are the ones that have to convince investors. They have to talk openly about how powerful of a company they are. So keep that in mind when you're listening to earnings reports. Either way, a lot of investors don't get this subject. And what Sachin Adela did, speaking down about Microsoft, had the effect of throwing cold water on the earnings report. And I don't think that that paints an accurate picture for a company of this quality. The main thing that I'll mention about Microsoft's report is even though things are decelerating a little bit, they're slowing down, the core products, the most profitable products and the most meaningful ones are still going really well. The server products and cloud services, they increased revenue by 20%. All of their server products still grew at a 20% rate. The Azure business, their primary cloud service revenue growth was 31%, and that's with currency being adjusted. If you held constant currency, which basically means if you took out foreign exchange rates, it grew at 38%. That's an astounding level of growth for Azure. So their core products are not decelerating that much. That is still very strong growth. So in my opinion, even though this is a slowdown this quarter, I think we can exercise a little patience here because I don't think this slowdown is going to last forever. The core businesses of Microsoft are still doing really well. A lot of the things that slowed down were their hardware sales, things that I don't think are as critical for the core business for Microsoft. Now, moving on, we're still looking at the year-to-date performance here. I want to go into the financial category. This is another one that I've built up heavily this year, S&P Global and MasterCard. If you haven't studied these businesses, I recommend doing so because the more that I look into them, the deeper I dive, the more I like these companies. They fit basically every characteristic I look for in a compounder. They have pricing power, real pricing power, where they raise prices for 10 years straight and they don't lose customers as a consequence. They have almost no CapEx requirements. So these companies are incredibly capital efficient. They have pricing power. They're monopolistic. They're highly entrenched businesses that I think will grow their earnings per share and free cash flow per share at a rate far exceeding the S&P 500 over the next 10 years. I truly believe these companies will trounce the S&P 500 over the next 10 years. MasterCard just reported their earnings and it was basically in line with expectations, which is exactly what I'm looking for. The CEO had commentary that's a little bit different than what we're seeing in the economic reports. He says that the economy overall is pretty resilient, that consumers are holding up, and he speaks about travel. He said, quote, as we look at the broader economy, we see the continued recovery of cross-border travel with volumes up 59% versus a year ago, and we're encouraged by Asia opening up further. While macroeconomic and geopolitical uncertainty persists, consumer spending has been remarkably resilient. We are well prepared to adjust our investment profile quickly if needed. That's another thing that 
being capitalite allows you. The company has a ton of flexibility. One more thing that I'd highlight from this earnings report is their return of capital to shareholders. Because MasterCard is such an efficiently ran business, what they're essentially able to do is reinvest very little back into their business and return all of their massive amounts of profits back to the investors. MasterCard repurchased 7.4 million shares at a cost of 2.4 billion dollars and paid 473 million dollars in dividends if the stock price ever dips for a company like this you know that they're buying back the shares aggressively they will work on getting that stock price back up through share repurchases mastercard is such an efficiently ran business that aside from some type of horrible disruption to their core business model i think the company will continue to compound its free cash flow per share at 15% over the next 10 years. And in terms of core risks to the business model, I believe the biggest one is government intervention. Now again, we're still looking at year to date here and we're going on to the next category, which is consumer. This is a category that I have not been adding to this year. In fact, all I've done in this category so far is trim different positions. I've trimmed my Nike position by a pretty substantial amount. I really like Nike as a stock and a company. I think it's phenomenally well ran. The metrics are incredible. The profitability ratios are incredible. The balance sheet is solid. There's nothing wrong with this business, but the stock price is just hard for me to wrap my head around. No matter which way I looked at it, the stock is just expensive. It trades at a 36 Ford PE ratio. The free cash flow is at like 1% right now. I've even ran through different discounted cash flow metrics based on different assumptions. So no matter what way I look at the company, I keep coming to the conclusion that it's just a bit expensive. I thought it was time to take some gains and move the money to other companies that I think present a better risk reward. In the restaurant category, Again, this is just year to date on these companies. I'm up in total over 6,000 on Texas Roadhouse and 3,000 on Starbucks. And I have not been buying or selling either of these companies. I've simply been holding them. I'm very bullish on Texas Roadhouse. I still think this company is gonna widely outperform the market over the next couple of years, especially if demand stays relatively strong for restaurant spending. So we'll see how this one does. The earnings reports next month, I'll give an update on it. But my assumption is it's going to be outgrowing a lot of growth companies. I think Texas Roadhouse will be outgrowing the majority of big tech once again. After the restaurant category, we have my real estate holdings. These are real estate investment trusts. I only hold one company right now, which is Vici. So far up 6.8% year to date. This is a very large holding of mine, and I have not bought any or sold any this year. And I don't plan on trimming this holding anytime soon. I'm still incredibly bullish on Vici. Although the company employs leverage because it's a real estate company, it has baked in pricing power. Every single year, they have contractual agreements to raise prices above the rate of inflation. So right there, we have the pricing power question solved. And we also have a growth aspect because they continue to buy new properties. So overall, I still like the valuation of the company. I still like the dividend payments. I like the growth prospects. And then last but not least, the category that's performed the worst this year is the industrials, which are actually in the red this year, down 1.5% year to date. I don't normally love industrial investments. And the reason that I don't love them is because of their incredibly high amounts of capex. They require a ton of capital to run these businesses. Lots of reinvestment back into the business year over year over year. For example, Union Pacific and Canadian Pacific, 
The average CapEx that they have to spend proportionate to their revenue is around 15% per year. When you look at a company like MasterCard or Visa or S&P Global, it's less than a percent per year. So these companies spend a fortune in CapEx. They have lots of heavy investments they have to make back into their business. The reason why I still invest in these companies, despite them having high CapEx, is because of their monopolistic market structure, the fact that they're highly entrenched, and I think they face very little competition and chance of disruption. I thought the earnings report was fine. It was nothing amazing. The market didn't seem to like it that much. The stock was down a couple percentage afterwards. But for the full year of 2022, the company grew revenue by 8%, which I think is good for Union Pacific because they struggle with that top line revenue growth and their operating income was up 6%. Now, what I actually thought the market didn't like the most was comments that the CEO made soon after the earnings release. He went on to CNBC and he spoke about the overall economy. Yeah, so unlike, let's say, the past three or four years, you've got this dynamic of the Fed raising interest rates very rapidly, which ultimately will destroy demand uh, across markets. And you've got consumers that have been telling us for quite some time that they're concerned, but they've been flush uh, with cash, mostly about transfer payments from the government, but also from a very hot jobs market. So you put those two together, and it, and it does appear that consumers are starting to pull in their horns on goods consumption. They're still consuming at a high rate on experiences and travel and entertainment. Uh, and, and it's just not clear yet exactly what the impact's going to be of the Fed interest rate increases, although clearly you can see early innings, it's having an impact on things like housing. Do you see the commonality here? Another CEO of a company that's widely considered an oligopoly and has entrenched market position is not talking glowingly about the future. He's saying that things are a little bit less predictable, uh, we have some employment issues, and he's highlighting all the challenges. But he can't highlight the strengths of his company. The CEO is not going to come out and say, we face very little competition, so we can continue to employ pricing power. We can raise prices because our customers, unfortunately, can't really go to anyone else. He's simply not going to say that. Now, if we go back to the earnings release, I want to jump to what I actually consider to be the most important thing to me. This is what I'm looking for here. The 2023 guidance. What they outline here is full year operating ratio improvement. So they're saying that margins are going to go up. Their operating efficiency is going to go up. And that is the story of the railroads becoming more and more efficient every single day. Then we have that next very difficult thing that I look for in companies. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Pricing power, which is the ability to raise the price of your product above the rate of inflation for 10 years straight without losing customers to competition. They outline that they're expecting to price dollars in excess of inflation dollars. So they're raising their prices in excess of inflation, and they state that openly. Why are they able to do that? Because they're railroads, and their customers, frankly, don't have many other options. And then in terms of capital allocation, like I outlined, they spend a significant amount of their revenue on CapEx. In this case, they're aiming for less than 15%. So that's a lot of money spent on CapEx. This is a downside of the company. 
But overall, I really like the fact that they pay a dividend with a low payout ratio, and then everything else goes back to share repurchases, which they repurchased over 4% of the shares outstanding over the past year. So even though the railroads haven't surged like the rest of the market this year so far, I'm still very bullish on them and I'm still buying these companies. I'll be adding to these positions as long as they lag the rest of the market. So this is what the portfolio looks like year to date. You can let me know what you think of it. If you agree with my buys, if you disagree, I'd be interested to know. And I'm happy with the performance year to date as well as all time. I think we're headed in the right direction. Now let's go ahead and move on to some news. We have the headline news that US GDP rose 2.9% in the fourth quarter. And there's a lot of different takes on this news. Like most economic data, you can look at it positively or negatively. I'll give you the basic argument for each side. The argument that the Wall Street Journal makes and what most economists are making right now is that this news really isn't as good as it seems. The overall economy is slowing down and we're coming out of an environment that was really easy going into an environment that's really difficult. They say the fourth quarter capped a year of economic slowdown, in part reflecting a return to a more normal pace of growth after output surged amid business reopenings, fiscal stimulus, and waning pandemic in 2021. All right, so we just got done with our pockets being filled with money and being locked up in our homes, and finally, we are able to spend that money, we're able to travel. So naturally, the economy's rebounding a little bit. But then they go on to highlight that the economic output grew 1% in the fourth quarter of 2022 compared with a year earlier, down from 5.7% growth in 2021 and 2.6% growth in 2019. So overall, the longer term trends are that the economy is slowing. It's actually moderating in pace. Whether you look at that as a good or bad thing is up to you. In my opinion, I actually think that this is a good thing. If we have an overheating economy, that'd be basically an invitation to the Fed to raise interest rates dramatically more. So I think the economic growth actually moderating is a good thing in terms of the Fed's interactions. And then the other bit of news is the layoffs. This is the more sad news. I really don't enjoy seeing people get laid off from work. Even when it's justified from the company, even when it's a responsible move by the employer, it's still not a fun thing to see. People losing their livelihood, losing their income stream. That's basically like a worst nightmare for anybody that depends on that income stream. And that's part of the reason building this channel is trying to help people find a different way to find passive income. The ability to at least survive without your primary job. With enough effort and time, we can get to a point where we're not totally reliant on our primary income. But layoffs have been picking up and they've started off with the biggest companies that are the trendsetters. Once big tech does anything, everyone else follows. That's the way these things work. A lot of companies simply modeled their COVID policies after big tech. If big tech was working for home, all the other companies would work from home. If big tech required wearing masks in the office, other companies said you had to wear masks in the office. Other companies basically copied their HR policies and their corporate policies. And now other companies have the leeway to do layoffs because big tech has done layoffs. So this is a concerning trend of rising layoffs. And in my opinion, I think this is gonna continue. I think a lot of these companies that did a big round of layoffs are gonna be doing another round of layoffs. When you look at the fundamentals of them, many of them hired so many more employees than the fundamentals of the companies justify. And I think we're gonna see a pretty big reversion over the next year. Now on the subject of layoffs with these companies, companies like Google. One of the things that I've been highlighting over the past year are these videos of a day in the life of a Google employee. And the reason I've been highlighting this is because I think they're so incredibly revealing 
of the problems with the culture of these companies. You can even see from watching any of these videos, basically all they're doing, or at least all they're showing here, is eating tons of good food, hanging around and doing minimal work. Get to the office at around 6 a.m. to beat the traffic and just get a nice workout in. At around 7 a.m. I'm getting ready at the locker room. We're getting breakfast at this really cute cafe at 8 a.m. Got some crepes, iced Americano, which is so good. And at around 8.20, I got to work. I usually get a snack at around 10 a.m. And today I forgot a charging cable, so I went to the vending machine to get one. And 11.30 is usually when I eat lunch. I got a whole hodgepodge of things including pizza, and this is the view that I like to eat with. At 12 o'clock, I get some more caffeine and just spend the afternoon doing some more work. I like to de-stress at the end of the day, and today I booked a massage appointment, so I have that for an hour and then go home at 5.30. These are the type of videos that we've looked at, and I've repeatedly said, I don't think these videos are a good idea. I think they represent the company poorly. It's bad PR for the company because it makes it look like the employees there are wasting money and resources. And I think if employees are gonna make these videos, they should focus more on the work that they do. What do they actually do at work? I think that'd be very interesting to see. I'm sure they do lots of high level things, things that are very important, highlight some of that stuff. It would look a lot better to people that are watching this on the sidelines. Now this employee here gets to the end of this day in the life of video, and then she has an important update for us. I'm at 5.30. Big life update. I got laid off yesterday. So that's the end of that. And now we're seeing more and more of these videos pop up of people getting laid off from companies like Google. So I woke up to this really ominous text from my boss and I honestly had no idea what it was going to be about. So I called her the minute I woke up and saw this and she told me to check the news and my email. So I rushed downstairs to find out that I had lost access to basically everything. I couldn't log into my email or even check my calendar. I called my boss back and we just sobbed over the phone because she was also finding out about my layoff for the first time today too. I started getting calls from a bunch of my coworkers and started finding out who else was let go on my team and some neighboring teams as well. But I think the worst part is that it seems like no one was consulted on this decision and everyone was just finding out about the layoffs at the same time. It just felt like a really bad game of Russian roulette and there was no consistency around who was let go. It was also not performance-based, so it just felt really random. I opened up LinkedIn, which honestly was not great for my mental health. There were so many people who were in the same boat that were both equally as shocked and blindsided, but it did help me feel a little less alone. Honestly, I spent so much of the day crying that I just felt so tired from being sad and wanted to do something that would just make me feel better. Luckily, I have an annual pass, so I headed over to Disney because I wanted to go eat my feelings. So I started off with a cinnamon galaxy churro. And so she gets laid off from Google and heads to Disneyland for the day. Now what she said here was correct. As far as I can tell, there was no performance-based layoffs at Google. Lots of people that had very high marks got laid off. Lots of people that were tenured, that worked at Google for a long period of time, got laid off. And the CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, is taking a lot of heat right now for the way that this happened. In fact, Google just recently held a town hall where they described it as animated because there was a lot of very frustrated employees. And in this case, they actually agree with many of the employees' complaints. In the town hall, Sundar Pichai is taking a lot of heat and a lot of different accusations and questions. And he tries to justify the reason that they overhired. And he tries to explain why Google overhired. And this is an explanation that I just don't understand. Pachai said that 2021 marked, quote, one of the strongest years we've ever had in the history of the company. With 41% revenue growth, Google increased headcount to match that expansion. And Pachai said that the company was assuming growth would persist. Now, first of all, did Sundar Pachai really believe that growth would continue at a rate of 41% 
for a company the size of Google? Because I have a very difficult time believing that any reasonable person would believe that growth would persist at anywhere close to this level, that there would be no reversion to the mean. I'm not Sundar Pichai. I'm not as knowledgeable as him. I'm not as smart as him. But I've highlighted many times on my channel the anomaly of growth they had in 2021 and how that was likely not going to continue. When things like that happen, there's almost always a reversion. So surely Sundar Pichai knew that this growth was not going to persist. And him saying that he hired 30,000 extra employees on the assumptions growth would just continue in perpetuity, I think is a little bit upsetting. I don't buy that excuse at all. But that was the decision that was made. In that context, we made a set of decisions that might have been right if the trends continued. Again, if the trends continued, if Google kept growing at 40%, if YouTube revenue kept growing at 40% per year, there's no way these trends were continuing at that rate of speed. Aside from that, there's another problem I have with Sundar Pichai's assumptions here. He says you have to remember that if the trends had continued and we had not hired to keep pace we would have fallen behind in many areas of the company. Now this part I'm a little bit baffled at as well. I don't understand it. Google's a highly scalable business with a ton of operating leverage with an extremely efficient core business in search and YouTube. The properties that they own are not like Amazon's. They don't have to hire warehouse workers. They're not like Union Pacific. They don't have to lay railway to grow their business. They're a company that is incredibly efficient. Google search is one of the best, highest margins, most efficient businesses on earth. So I have a difficult time understanding why they would have fallen behind if they didn't hire as many employees. So I think a lot of this is the fault of the management. And I think it's something that a lot of the bigger tech companies did. Amazon overhired as well. Microsoft probably overhired in parts of their company. But Google, I think, was the one that did this to the most extreme. Now, for those of you that might accuse me of having hindsight bias and saying everything's 2020 in hindsight, I wasn't just saying this in hindsight. I have videos mid last year over six months ago, questioning why the company was still hiring so many employees. This has been an ongoing problem that I've highlighted time and time again with Google. And they say in terms of the employees that was laid off, there was a lot of things considered. Their skill set, how crucial their role was, their experience, their relationships, their performance, so on and so forth. So there's no one thing that determined it. I think a lot of it just came down to where they could cut costs the most. Now, the last thing that I want to mention is a note from Morningstar. And I want to give Morningstar an award here for this note. The award that I'll give them is being latest to the game. The latest one to figure something out. The last person to actually figure out the obvious. They have Apple here, which they currently give a three-star rating. And then just recently, they decided to upgrade Apple from a narrow economic moat to a wide economic moat. And they've raised the fair value to $150. So there you have it from Morningstar. They finally acknowledged the obvious. And I thought we should take some time and appreciate them for doing that. Now that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed and I'll see you in the next one.